It was fine in my family to be angry. It was not okay to be sad. Hello there, and welcome to This Is My Family, a podcast about building a life with the people you love. I'm your host, Tyler Green, and I'm so glad that you're here. I'm raising a baby with my husband in California, and we're taking this pandemic one day at a time, just like I'm sure a lot of you are. And as my family grows, I wanted to have honest, unfiltered conversations with people about how we make our families and how our families make us. In each episode, I talk to someone who can inspire us to think about family in a new, bigger, more inclusive way. Some are people I've known for years. Others are people whose work is important to me. In this episode, I'm talking to Annalise Razik. I've known Annalise for quite a few years now. She is an incredible storyteller. So good, in fact, that the popular live storytelling show, The Moth, has featured her many times. If you haven't heard her moth stories, you must. There's a link in the show notes to one of my favorites. I also directed Annalise in a solo performance about her stepfather, Bill. As I worked with her, I saw someone who used art to process the complex emotions that surround her family relationships. So I wanted to talk to her on this show because I know that she's done a lot of soul searching as an adult about how her parents and step-parents shaped who she is. The influence of our parents is something that we all know is real, but we don't always take time to really investigate and understand. Annalise has. I started by asking her about what it was like for her when her parents first split up. The reason that they separated is not any, what I would term, typical reason that people get divorced. Basically, my father was having some kind of mental breakdown. It started with, I think, kind of paranoid episodes. And to my father's credit, I guess he just came to my mom one day and said, I need you to take me to the hospital. Mm. And so he, he was getting treatment, but I think the kinds of things that he started saying to my mom, the kind of tipping point is that... He started saying to her that my brother and I were not really his children. And so my mom started getting worried that in the state that he was in, he might harm us in some way. And when she went to go talk to his psychiatrist about it, basically the psychiatrist said that he couldn't guarantee that nothing would happen. And so I think my mom just reached a point where she thought, I can't. Hmm. I can't wait for something horrible to happen or be worried all the time. And so we moved in with my grandparents, with her parents. And it was just devastating. The one just extremely, you know, painful memory from that time is that my dad came to my grandparents' house we were playing out on the driveway, and I had this red hippity hop, which I don't know if they have those anymore, but it's like a giant red ball that you sit on and you hop around. I loved that thing. And I was hippity hopping on the driveway, and my dad drove up, parked the car, got out, 
And I remember, because I was always excited to see him, and I remember like going, Daddy. And he didn't look at my brother and I. He was like just, he had a look on his face that just breaks my heart right now when I think about it. You know, a kind of a clearly on a mission to do something and also just in such incredible distress. And he rang the doorbell and my my mom came to the door and he got down on his knees and he was like, come back. He said, please come back. Hmm. And my mom was saying, Saeed, I can't, you know, I can't. And and then my grandfather came to the door and I just remember him just saying really sadly, like, Saeed, you have to go back home. Hmm. And so my dad stood up. He looked lost. Yeah. That's what it was. He looked lost. Mm-hmm. And he stood up to go back to the car and he turned to my brother and said, will you come with me? And my brother went, and I remember them driving away, and my brother looking out the back window in total panic and crying. And he must have been about six and a half. Wow. And then I think my dad brought him back either a few hours later, or I think it was just a few hours later he brought him back. Hmm. Just heartbreaking all the way around, you know? Mm-hmm. And was there a diagnosis? There was. Hmm. The diagnosis was paranoid schizophrenia. Honestly, my brother and I have talked about this so much, whether that diagnosis was actually accurate. Hmm. My father was essentially, you know, he was an immigrant. He was born on the West Bank in Ramallah, and it's a an epicenter of conflict for many years. I believe every person that lives there cannot help but be affected by trauma. And so he carries that with him. And then the stress of coming to this country, which had great opportunities for him, but also incredible racism. He was the man of his family. You know, he he had a brother who was institutionalized at an early age. There's a mental illness component, uh, anxiety, or I don't know what the exact diagnosis is, but it clearly runs through that side of the family. And again, is that a chemical thing or is it a result of trauma? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm still so many layers to work through. But because of all that complexity, you know, my brother and I have always been like, is that really what it was? Or was it depression or mania or who knows? So after the divorce, your father remarried. Tell me about your stepmother. What was it like when she came into your life? I remember that she hated me. The apartment in my memories, in my vision, after she came is always dark. I knew Immediately, I had a sense that I wasn't safe. And, you know, my mom, as I got older and things escalated in that relationship with my stepmother, it's the only time, actually, in in all of my history that anyone attempted to explain cultural differences, even though my entire growing up is 
intrinsically bound to cultural differences. I was saying to her, I don't understand why this woman hates me. And my mom said she was brought over here. She spoke no English. She gets dumped in this apartment in St. Louis. Yeah. My mom said that she was not aware of my father's, you know, mental difficulties. So she just said she was just in a horrible situation. And my mom said that she tried to help her. And while I appreciate the fact that my mom was definitely a compassionate person, oddly, I didn't feel like her compassion extended to me as a child. When I look back on it now, I find it odd that I was coming home because we would go to my dad's every other weekend, and it was horrible. I hated going. And I would come home and say, I don't want to go over there anymore. I don't want to go. And it's just interesting to me that instead of saying, well, what's going on and what can we do, instead... Basically, this person's behavior was justified to me. (laughs) Do you think it was like a protection of your father or like maybe some guilt about like the separation and wanting to fix that? Bingo. Right when you said that. Yep. I think Mm -hmm. that's very perceptive. I think everyone had guilt. But to me, I just look at it as a very unfortunate turn of events. You know, a situation where everybody really was doing the best they could but with very limited skills and with very difficult circumstances. So later in your life, when you were about 13, you cut ties with that side of the family. And I wanted to know what happened with your stepmom that led to to breaking those ties. One of the reasons up till I was 13 that I kept going is that They had their first child together, who is my half-brother, Abe, and we are very, very close. Mm -hmm. And so when he was little, I would babysit him when I went over there, and I loved him. But the day that it, it finally all came down, I was sitting at the kitchen table trying to do my homework, and so I was really concentrated just working on my homework, and... While I was doing that, my brother Abe came in and I don't know, he was doing something. And then he left the room. And then a little bit later, my stepmother comes in and just starts screaming at me in Arabic. And I looked over and it was because he was, he took an apple out and he was trying to cut it up. And so there was just stuff all over the counter. It was a mess. And she was freaking out, you know, yelling at me and saying, how could you let him do this? You know, what are you doing? He'd been trying to cut it up with like a big sort of You know, not like a butcher knife, but a big knife, a big, Mm -hmm. like it's probably dangerous what he was doing. And she picked up that knife and she just flung it at me. And I was like, all right, that's it. So at 13, I remember I was like shaking, but I just stood up very calmly. And I remember just folding up all my books and my notebooks and stacking it all up. And I went into the living room and I said, dad take me home. I remember my voice was shaking and he was like, what? And I said, I will never, ever set foot in this house ever again. Mm. And I think probably because of the look on my face, he didn't ask me any more questions. We got in the car 
and it was 30 years before I ever saw my stepmother again (laughs) or went to my father's house 30 years. Wow. Annalise's mother, Carol, got remarried too. She married a man named Bill. The first time Bill encountered Annalise and her brother, it wasn't while dating their mom. It was actually at a community event held by something called the Ethical Society. It's a humanist congregation, a community that gathers without religious dogma. Bill told me years later that that was where he had first seen my brother and I. Hmm. We were at the coffee after whatever talk or whatever there was in the basement where they had the cookies and the lemonade. And he was always very observant. Bill was always a kid magnet. Like kids just loved him, just gravitated to him, which was always fascinating to me because he was physically imposing. You know, he was a big guy, like football player type guy with dark skin and then snow white hair. So the contrast was, like, he was very distinctive looking, very handsome. Yeah. Bill was black, by the way. Did I say that? You said (laughs) dark-skinned. So he was down in the basement, and the other kids, I guess, were running around doing stuff. But my brother and I were together, sort of in the corner, like, quietly sitting there together. And he was watching us, and he asked this woman, like, "Who, who are those kids And the woman said, oh, you know, those are Carol's kids. But she said there's something wrong with them. Because we were clearly not acting like, you know, we weren't running around doing stuff. We were were just sitting together uh, Mm -hmm. quietly. And Bill told me that he looked at us for a second and he looked back at her and he said, there's nothing wrong with those kids. They're just sad. Mm. Which just touches me so deeply you know Mm. that was the thing about him is he just had tremendous compassion Mm. and I think at that time everyone and and for years after I think was so busy trying to fix things by ignoring them (laughs) by shoving them down that It's so powerful to be seen in that way and to have someone acknowledge just the truth of what's going on. So I'm sure that I saw him at the Ethical Society, but what I remember about him, my memory of him, is this just visceral joy that I would feel when I saw him. I just loved him instantly. And I remember he would come to my grandparents' house and I would just fling my little body at him. You know, when he came through the door, I would, I was just like, Bill! And I would run and just fling myself at him and he would scoop me up, you know, and I always wanted to be physically close to him. And he was such a source of light. Mm -hmm. It's even more remarkable to me now as an adult to know that he carried such light and he carried it especially for me. But to know now as an adult that he had his own pain, you know, his own deep pain that he was dealing with. 
but even in the midst of all of that, to be able to give so generously, you know, of who you are is just incredible. And what was some of that pain? You know, he came from a family with a lot of kids. His father wasn't around. But the family was just decimated by alcoholism. It was sad. I feel like he had dreams that he never got to do. He would lay on the floor in the house and he would be surrounded by, we had this giant dictionary. Uh, No one has these anymore. Like just, it was just humongous. And he would have the dictionary open and he would have the atlas and the encyclopedias open and he would be reading about all these different places in the world, you know, mm-hmm. in a different time and and different life circumstances. He would have been a world traveler, you know. It's clear the joy that Bill brought into your life. We've spent a lot of time talking to each other about Bill, especially for your solo show. But Bill and your brother had a much more difficult relationship. Yeah. My relationship with Bill existed in a bubble over here that was just my love for him and our love for each other and the light that he brought for me. And then another bubble was alcoholism and his struggles with drinking and and then another bubble was his relationship with my brother my brother and he especially toward the end it was apparent loved each other but you know My brother and I had very different relationships with Bill. My brother was very, very angry when my parents separated and then divorced. I was grateful for Bill because I needed a stabilizing force. My brother was kind of resentful. And because of Bill's alcoholism and I think limited ability to be able to deal with difficult emotions. He was not able to be the adult that he needed to be with my brother. And so they got into conflict a lot. Mm -hmm. And Bill apologized to my brother many, many years later. It was just very touching. And I know my brother really appreciated it. But at the time that we were growing up, it did a lot of damage. More with Annalise in just a minute. If you're enjoying the show, please hit subscribe or follow so that you don't miss an episode. You can scroll back and check out seasons past. Maybe you'd like to hear my conversation with the host of the Code Switch podcast, the delightful Shireen Marisol Moraji. As a parent... Do you ever wish someone could just whisper some realistic and trustworthy support in your ear and not make you feel awful for not having all the answers? Well, that's what I'm here for. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, developmental psychologist, parent educator, clinical professor, and I'm a mom. My goal is to make your parenting journey less overwhelming and a lot more joyful. Please join me every Friday for new episodes of Raising Good Humans.
As I was talking with Annalise about the difficulties of her childhood, I told her about something my old therapist taught me, that there are three things humans need to feel in order to thrive, safety, control, and worth. I asked her what came to mind when I said those three words. Am I allowed to curse? Of course. (laughs) My first thought when you said those three words is, I'm fucked. (laughs) (laughs) I am fucked. Yeah. Because, (laughs) you know, safety, yes, in the bubble that Bill and I existed in, I felt safe. But I did not feel safe with the things that were going on in our home And I will also say that I never felt unsafe with Bill personally, but as anyone who's grown up around an alcoholic, especially if you grew up in an alcoholic home, so where you were a child, I think that there's always an element of when you come home on a given day, it's like, what am I walking into today? (laughs) I guess this... Is it a good day? Is it a bad day? And then at my dad's house, when I was still going there, safety, no, (laughs) no safety. Control's an interesting one because because I had no control at home, Mm -hmm. I tried to exercise hyper-control outside the home. So, you know, straight-A student, hyper-organized volunteers for everything, like superwoman, you know, and I look at that now and I really see that I was just running, (laughs) Mm -hmm. just running, just like stay in motion, stay in motion, stay in motion is a strategy that followed me for most of my life Mm -hmm. because then all the stuff that you're, you know, scrunching down, there's no time or energy for it to come up because you just have too much going on. Yeah. And then worth, I've always struggled with that. This is very recently, within the last couple of weeks, hmm. I was reading a book, which is called Normal People, by a, a young woman named Sally Rooney. And she's just brilliant, I feel like, at revealing complex relationships. One of the characters in this book, partway through the book, I was like, oh, does she live in an abusive family? And it turns out she does. And the whole central relationship of the book is starts in her teenage years with this guy she goes to school with. They continue to be involved through college. And, and they have tremendous affinities for each other, but just an inability to actually be together for an extended period of time in relationship. And he says toward the end of the book that he realizes that there is a pit inside of her, just a big, dark pit that can never be filled, you know? Mm. And when I read that, I just immediately burst into tears because I experienced that is like, it does feel like a pit. And the thing is, for most of my life, I thought everybody had that. Mm -hmm. I thought everybody had that. And I thought everybody had this kind of self-loathing that I've struggled with. And it really is only in the last few years that all of a sudden I realized like, oh, I remember because I was talking to my therapist and I was like, you know, 
one of the ways that I've gotten through life is that I just minimize things that are painful to myself. Great compassion for other people, no compassion for myself. And so when we were in therapy, I was saying, yeah, but you know, we were talking about some of these very difficult things. And I said, yeah, but everybody comes from a fucked up family. And she was like, well, (laughs) like there are degrees (laughs) to that. And I was like, really? (laughs) And so that's when I started realizing like, oh, Everyone is not experiencing this or even degrees of this. Like some people don't have this in their lives at all. That's amazing. Like, I wonder what that feels like. Annalise's family of origin was no doubt complicated, but she still always expected to be a mother and have her own kids. She married a man named Greg. Before their daughter, Kaylee, was even born, Annalise was worried about repeating the chaos of her own childhood. And I know Kaylee. She's about my age now, all grown up. And she's awesome. Really, truly a badass. My kid is still a toddler. So I wanted to get some advice from Annalise about how she found the tools to be a great parent. I started immediately from the time I was pregnant thinking... How can I make sure she doesn't get all of my crap? (laughs) How can I make sure I transfer as little of my fuck-uppedness to her? (laughs) And so when I was pregnant, I was like, okay, you you know, you've got to, like, be calm. You have to be calm. Like, I don't know how to deal with this conflict. You can't freak out you know, your internal conflict, because she can feel it. And I did varying degrees of a good job with that. So I have a question about that, because I think you and I both grew up in tumultuous childhoods. Yeah. And I think you and I are pretty good people in the world now, so we somehow did it. But I wonder, as your daughter grew up, how did you raise her? And I know that's a simple question, but you know, you say she's very rooted and that's fine. I mean, I experienced you as pretty strong and powerful and rooted. I don't know that you would say that about yourself, but I see that. And so how'd you do it? Well, you know, yes, you're right. I don't see myself that way. I see myself as a mess. (laughs) (laughs) Same here, but other people tell me I got my shit together. So sure, fine. I think this is one of our, we, you and I have many affinities and that's definitely (laughs) one of them. Yeah. You know, I feel like she was born who she is on the one hand. I don't think that had anything to do with me, but I will say that I did make a conscious choice from the very beginning to avoid doing things that I knew had been done to me. Hmm. And when I say things that have been done to me, you know, my parents, all three of them, you know, my dad, my stepdad, my mom, they all did the best that they could. I know that. And I know that they loved me. I also know that they were missing some critical skills that could have really helped me. And I knew what some of those were. 
It was fine in my family to be angry. It was not okay to be sad. Mm. And nobody in my family knew how to handle sadness. We didn't talk about it. It wasn't acknowledged. And I think that's probably because everybody was just, in some ways, kind of white-knuckling it through life. Mm. It's sort of like if you let a little bit out, you might open the floodgates and you're not prepared to handle that. So Mm. don't. Mm. So one thing with her is that I always wanted to make sure that she knew it was okay to feel however she was feeling. When Kaylee was about maybe five years old, my mom was up visiting for the weekend and Kaylee got upset about something. I don't know what it was. And I tried to talk to her a little bit, but she had just sort of reached a point of kind of wailing about it and talking wasn't going to be helpful. And so I said, that's okay. You you could just go lay down and cry for a while if that's what you're, you know, if that's what you need to do. And my mom had made dinner and we'd had the food on the table and we were sitting down to eat and I... I couldn't eat with the sound of the wailing. Like, it's just, I need things to be peaceful when I eat. Like, I can't handle that. And so the weather was nice. I said, I'm going to take my food and go out on the porch and eat. And I go out on the porch, and (laughs) like a couple of minutes later, I hear the wailings getting louder and louder. And here comes my mom leading my screaming daughter out onto the porch with us. And she's got two plates of food, and she's trying to get Kaylee to sit down and eat. And I know she's doing it to, you know, that sort of old school thing, like distract her. Like, come on, come on, we're all going to eat. And that's bad enough. I was like, why why did you bring her out here? (laughs) And then... While we're sitting there, Kaylee's mouth is like wide open because when I say she's wailing, she is wailing. Her mouth is wide open and my mom pops a piece of food in there. (laughs) I was like, whoa. It was like a dizzying tumble back through time. So many things started clicking into place in my head. Like, oh, food. Like you stuff your emotions with food. And I remember I got so angry. And I rarely got directly angry with my mom, but I got so angry. And I looked at her and I said, don't you ever do that again. I said, if she wants to cry, if she wants to scream for the next three hours, then you'd let her scream. Wow. I mean... And I I feel bad because I know that, again, my mom's just doing what she knows how to do. But that message, it made so much sense to me. It really did put so many things in order for my childhood where I was like, oh, man. And so not only letting Kaylee feel whatever she feels, but also not hiding how I feel, that Mm. was the other thing. And I'm not saying... You know, you still have to, I I always felt like, well, I have to filter things to to her that are age appropriate, right? So she was three and a half when Greg and I separated. So I'm having this horrible year and I'm thinking, how do I, we're close. (laughs) 
she's picking up on things. She yeah. knows when I'm sad. So I don't want to pretend like I'm not sad, but yeah. I also don't want her to be overwhelmed by it. I want her to know it's going to be okay because I do believe it's going to be okay. I remember one evening, she was probably four maybe, and I had gotten a phone call from Greg and I was really upset after this phone call. I'd gone out on the back porch to talk to him and I was just really sad. And I came in and she saw me, you know, I could tell, she could tell. And I I just walked into the living room and I sat down on the couch and I was crying. And she came in and she was looking at me and I just said, I'm just really sad right now. And she came over and she sat next to me with her sweet little skinny legs. And then she reached over and she patted my knee and she said, it's okay, mommy. I think we should go to bed and you're going to feel so much better in the morning. Mm. And I said, you're right. That's so good. (laughs) That's really good advice. And we went to bed. And when I got up the next morning and I said, you're right, I feel better. Uh, I love that so much. Uh, So you've got Kaylee. She's grown up. Who else do you consider family now? Um, I'm curious, how does your family look compared to how you imagined it might I want to be able to say, oh, here's the kind of family that I wanted, and now I have it. (laughs) You know, when I was upset growing up in my house with my stepfather and my mom and my brother, where I felt like we were four people in four different corners of the house, Mm. and I, you know, vowed to myself, my family's not going to look like this. One of the reasons I went to acting school, when you do a show, you have an instant family. So for the time of that rehearsal and the performances, like you are bonded with those people. And I loved that feeling. You know, I started doing storytelling because my entire life I've been trying to make sense of my life. (laughs) Just like so much. It's so overwhelming, my history, my family history. And I've been trying to make it make sense or make order out of it or, I don't know, just extract the meaning from it. So I started writing stories and telling stories to try to get a grip on that. And it was hard to start doing that because I thought nobody cares about, nobody wants to hear about this, like this very specific You know, I grew up a Polish-Palestinian with a black stepfather. Like, who's going (laughs) to, who's going to relate to this? Like, who's going to, this isn't going to, nobody cares about this. But the surprising thing has been that the more specific you get, the more people can relate to it, which makes no sense whatsoever, but it's true. And through doing that, telling these stories... I do feel a communion with the people who listen, and I feel so connected to them in a way that lets me know every time I do that, that I really am not alone, Mm. you know? And I can feel that connection anytime. It's always available to me. Even though I am a person now in my life circumstance, I live alone and you know, during COVID, I've really been a little bit concerned about myself. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm, as I've said, turning into like an agoraphobic hermit who never wears pants. 
you know? You and every other person in the world, actually. <laughs> but even though I live alone and I spend a lot of time alone because I actually like quiet and it helps me create things, I feel connected to so many people. And I have a small cadre of you know, people I have heart connections with, like real intimate heart connections. And those people are my family, mm. you know, and my family who's still alive that I'm close to, you know, my brother Abe and my brother David and my daughter, of course. So, yeah, it doesn't look at all like I thought it would look. And I feel really lucky. I was thinking about season two of this podcast and kind of the conversations we really loved from the first season. And we identified that we really wanted to talk to people this season who would, quote, go there. And I also wanted my listeners to know a little bit more about me and the people that I call family. So I made a short list of a couple of people and you were very at the top. And so I'm so glad that we took the time to really go through your background and paint this picture for people because you have lived an incredible life and your daughter is just the most beautiful expression of what I would consider a very successful life on earth. I'm just grateful to you for allowing me to introduce you to this new community and thanks for I guess always making me feel safe and loved. Tyler, I do love you. <laughs> I do love you. I'm so grateful to have you in my life and to call you my family. So thanks. Thanks for making this space for me, too. Mm. You're welcome. Annalise and I have a little inside joke. Every time we see each other in person, or virtually these days, there are inevitably tears. Not because we're particularly depressed people, but because we feel things really deeply. And I always look forward to crying with her. It's kind of a form of creativity almost. Like, how can we push each other to the point of emotional release so that there's something else on the other side? I love that about us. And the thing is, Annalise was taught to hide away most of her emotions for so long. But by consciously opening herself up in this way, making art, unearthing her memories, and turning them into stories she can share, it's clear that she was able to take a very different approach with her daughter. Respecting her kids' emotions, and her own, became such an important tool for them. And that's something I want to take away from this conversation. I think it's common for all of us to say, how do we not repeat the mistakes of our parents? I'm still thinking about Kaylee's let's go to bed, you'll feel better in the morning advice to her mom when she was so young. Like, she's clearly repeating the good, gentle nurturing she's used to receiving from Hanalise. She's doing a damn fine job. After this conversation, I'm also left with a reminder that every human being has a complex story underneath what we see on a daily basis. Our lives are complicated, rich, layered, full of surprises. We truly don't know what's going on over there, so to speak. And so we step into another person's shoes to know more and to know ourselves a little bit more, too. I have such gratitude to you, Annalise, for opening up your world to me and to our listeners. In the end, it helps us all feel less alone 
during these incredibly isolated and disconnected times. Thank you to my friend Annalise Razik for joining us and sharing her story. You can check out her work at AnnaliseRazik.com. And again, check out that moth story in the show notes. Brussels sprouts, I'm telling you, you will never think of them the same again. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at TIMF Show. Our website is TIMFshow.com. This podcast is a production of thestoryproducer.com, and it's made by me, Katie Clarkson, Trisha Bobita, Jackie Ball, and B. Bosco. It's edited and mixed by Adam Yaffe. Our music is by Andrew Edwards. Social Current takes care of our social media and show admin. You can find them at Social Current, that's C-U-R-R-A-N-T. And last, but certainly not least, our art director is my handsome husband, Siwoo Jo. If you like this show, we need your help to spread the word. Okay, this week I'm going to say, can you give us a five-star rating? I've been obsessively checking, and it looks like the last one we had was with the title Representation Matters, and it's one of my favorite reviews. I love it. And it's been a while since that one. So if you could give us a five-star review and say something nice, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Tyler Green, and until next time, stay beautiful and messy. Is the podcast all done, Sam?